Ladies and gentlemen, good evening and welcome to this pre-performance talk before the Pirates of Penzance. And you can see still photographs from the production that we're going to see tonight behind me on the screen there. Um, a little house notices first. Please, of course, make certain that you've turned off telephones, uh, pages, anything else that might sing and whistle and dance and uh, create anything uh, uncomfortably unusual. Can I remind you that there is uh, no uh, photographing and there's no recording there? We shall be recording the event, and if you want to hear it again, it'll be on the Eno website uh, probably from tomorrow, and you can hear it. And we shall, in fact, be taking a few photographs at the beginning uh, of, of, of the event itself. Um, with their fourth opera, Arthur Sullivan and W.S. Gilbert had had a hit on their hands. Audiences and critics completely fell for HMS Pinafore after it had opened here in London in 1878. And word about this show soon crossed the Atlantic. And before you could count up your sisters, your cousins and your aunts, approximately 150 American companies had quickly mounted unauthorised productions, often taking extraordinary liberties with the text and paying absolutely no royalties to the two men who had created the show. So the Pirates of Penzance are copyright pirates, as well as those tender-hearted cutthroats from that most sedate of Victorian seaside resorts, Penzance. While Pinafore was running so strongly in London, Gilbert was eager to get started on his and Sullivan's next opera, and he began working on the libretto for the new work in December 1878. He borrowed his hero Frederick, whose apprentice you'll remember to pirates by a deaf nursemaid who mishears the word pirate for pilot from an earlier work he'd written, Our Island Home. And like Frederick, the hero of Ireland Home, Captain Bang, was also mistakenly indentured as a, into a pirate band as a child. And like Frederick, he's never seen a woman before. Frederick is determined in The Pirates of the Penzance to do his duty. When he's finally freed from his apprenticeship to the pirates on his 21st birthday, he promptly, as you'll remember, falls in love with Mabel, the first pretty woman that he sees. Mabel, the object of Frederick's romantic feelings, is in a long line of very sensible Gilbertian heroines. And her father, of course, well, he's the very model of a modern major general. His bevy of daughters, not to mention the policemen of Penzance, were, of course, effectively invented for this new work. For reasons that we shall hear about in a moment, uh, it had been decided that the premiere of Pirate should be in New York, not in London. So, in November 1879, Gilbert, Sullivan and their indispensable partner, Richard Doylicart, sailed to America with a company of extraordinarily fine singers to play both Pinafore and the new opera. Sullivan was writing the music backwards for the Pirates of Penzance, and so he finished Act Two before the three men in the company set sail. Alas, when they got to New York, he discovered that he had left the entire folio of sketches for Act One behind in London. This is, of course, before the days of internet, emails, etc., etc., and he had to reconstruct the first act entirely from memory. Indeed, Gilbert told a correspondent many years later that Sullivan was unable to recall anything of the setting of the entrance of the women's chorus, so he simply substituted the chorus climbing over Rocky Mountain from an earlier work the two men had made, Thespis. Sullivan was no doubt, in no doubt about the new work, writing to his mother from New York, the libretto is ingenious, clever, wonderfully funny in parts, and sometimes brilliant in dialogue. Beautifully written for music, as is all Gilbert does. 
The music, I think, is infinitely superior in every way to Pinafore, tunier and more developed of a higher class altogether. I think that in time it will be very popular. And popular it was when it opened in New York on the 31st of December, 1879, and it has remained so on both sides of the Atlantic, opening in London on the 3rd of April, 1880, when it ran for an initial 363 performances. Well, we have a quartet of guests to help us buckle our cutlasses for this evening's performance of the Pirates of Benzance. The baritone, Adrian Powter, who covering the role of the very modern Major General in this production, and Chris Hopkins, a member of the music staff, here at English National Opera, will be performing us. And we're also joined by David Neese, an unabashed enthusiast for Gilbert and Sullivan, and Mike Lee, who directs this new production here at English National Opera. Will you please welcome David Neese and Mike Lee. David, um, let's do a little history first. Um, where does Pirates come in the kind of Gilbert and Sullivan catalogue? Well, as you set it up so eloquently, it's after the first huge hit, Pinafore. Um, and before that, of course, uh, Sorcerer, the one that doesn't often get mentioned, which um, is dramatically slower, I suppose, but has some wonderful ideas and certainly some wonderful music. And, of course, before that, the Perfection, that is the one-act trial by jury with Before at Thespis, which was mostly lost. I don't know whether any more music has been found, but it has been reconstructed in part. So that is the, it's the uh, fifth in the series. So this is the beginning of the golden run, really? Well, I think Pinafore's the, the beginning of the golden run, isn't it? Um, essentially, and, and it's interesting you quoting Sullivan on saying that he thinks Pirates is infinitely superior to Pinafore. I find them equally perfect in their classicality in the sense that as you start to move through the later Gilbert and Sullivan operas, you find Sullivan and Gilbert reaching wider and finding more and more extraordinary effects, perhaps more seriousness at times. And yet, of course, inevitably they are longer. So um, it struck me watching Mike's production on the first night that, that there isn't actually a duff number in the piece. And certainly no OTS dialogue, except perhaps the orphan, orphan thing, which I kind of enjoyed because I felt this is coming from pantomime where the pirate king and is it the major general are, are saying did I say orphan or orphan <laughs> I mean, it just goes on and on but I thought the childlike quality of that it was just pure panto but apart from that you know I just think it it, it just goes and Pinafore also just goes and uh, I think they're wonderful operas to introduce children to because they won't get bored at any point if the production is good enough. But you, you were nodding at the notion that this is a carefully, beautifully constructed piece. Is that your feeling about yes, Pirates? Yes, as a matter of fact, I think that uh, the Pirates of Penzance is way superior to HMS Pinafore. Certainly, um, what happens in HMS Pinafore, it doesn't really... There's a lot of... Um, uh, dead wood in HMS Pinafore. There are good numbers, but the story, I mean, it, it sort of drags, and uh, it, it doesn't... Re Whereas the, the great thing about the pirates, probably because it derives... It's a, it's a kind of parody, um, a, 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 or a spoof, if you like, a, a, of earlier 19th-century melodrama in many of his aspects. I mean, the story zips along. It probably... Um, I've reflected whilst doing it that probably, in terms of a story and the synthesis, the fusion of story and lyrics and music, it's, it could be the best 
of the Gilbert and Sullivan yes. Opera. <clears throat> it was striking. Be be yeah, because there's no... It never stops for a dissertation of any kind. Mm -hmm. uh, it never stops to... It, it, th th there is no slack, um, no dead water. And I, I, I think, actually, probably HMS Pinafore, they were probably heading towards the pirates. The pirates of Penzance really is the last of the first phase. Yes. Would you agree with yes, that? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, um, in 1879, uh, Gilbert was, what, 36 and Sullivan was... Yeah, oh, Gilbert was 40-something and yeah, Sullivan yeah, yeah. was... They, well, they were still youngish. Yes. It's... it's uh, I like the pirates, and I think what we've managed to get out of it in the production is its youthfulness. Yes. And I think it was, you know, the next opera that they do is Patience, which is a very cynical, funny, satirical thing about stuff that was going on in London society, in art, you know, the aesthetic movement, a whole different ball game. And that was immediately after the pirates. So the pirates is really the last opera in the first in their youthful phase, mm. and the best of them. Yeah. So I, think that's I, I have cool. to say that, that my particular attachment to HMS Pinafore is because we did it at school, when I, junior school, when I was 10, and I was Sir Joseph Porter. So whenever I see it, I get the goosebumps and the irrational tears come to my eyes, simply because it's an attachment with the poem. I'm very it, glad it, you started at the top, David. It, it, it is interesting that um, people's experience at school, um, or experience of elderly relations who sang Gilbert and Sullivan means that they either love it or hate it yeah. to death. Yes. <laughs> I think that's the halfway mark. Because yes. I think, <laughs> I mean, well, I, I kind of abandoned it when I got rather grand and went to university, but found my way back with Im immense pleasure, mm. I think. Can I ask you, David, um, just to explain a little bit, why was the opera given its first performance in New York and not in London? Um, I think you partly set it up, didn't you? It was the copyright issue um, that they were trying to copyright Pinafore and this wonderful idea that um, the Pirates was actually performed the day before on the 30th of December in the Bijou Theatre Painton. Uh, Patience, Painton. Does it still exist, the Bijou Theatre? No, but there's know? a plaque on oh, the right. wall there okay. which okay. says it happened. Yeah. Right. Um, and, I mean, I, uh, I just wondered, the, the film you made, Topsy Turvy, is absolutely peerless as a film of putting on a show but I also think this period of what was going on in paint and what was going on in New, in New York and Sullivan writing until four or five in the morning and practically having a certainly he was very frail physically I mean it would make also a wonderful counterpoint of a drama either on stage well, we, or we, we did actually I did actually reflect really? on the possibility of making a film about that mm. um, but it would that. have been too yeah. expensive right to say the least what because you'd have to film half in New York yeah, all sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The other thing, Mike, that, 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 that seems to underpin this is something that we've perhaps, to some extent, lost, lost track of, which is a kind of 19th century fascination with pirates. Um, I've just come back from Cardiff from looking at the dress rehearsal of a new opera version of Peter Pan, Pirates again, mm. Captain Hook. There's something about pirates in the 19th century that seems to uh, fascinate people who would have absolutely no direct knowledge of pirates, would have absolutely no chance of becoming pirates. What is it, you think? Well, um, as I said, they are the stock, that they're one of the stock elements in earlier 19th century melodrama. I don't know that um, it's, uh, generally speaking, the London audience or, or the audiences in the provinces, you're right, wouldn't have experienced, uh, wouldn't have experienced pirates as such. But 
this is a marine nation. <laughs> and, you know, uh, sailing um, round the globe uh, could be pretty dangerous. I think there were pirates out there. Uh, but I'm not an expert on the, the um, trajectory of the way pirates found their ways into 19th century melodrama, but they certainly did, and they're at the centre of that. Perhaps you know something the, about that. Well, no, I don't, but they're picture book pirates, aren't they? And I do know that Treasure Island had just come out, and so there was a, a fascination with the, the boys' own element of, of yeah. pirates, which... Again, I think you brought up delightfully some of the childlike aspects in this piece, that it could be done as a, a child's fantasy up to a point. And I particularly love, although this is moving slightly sideways, the way that the Major General was so childlike, that you actually gave him a character um, that he dances with his girls in a little ring. Um, and it's, he's acting out a story that they all know, and that he seemed to be very childlike, and Frederick seems to be old before his time. And I was even wondering... No, again, I'm going sideways, sorry, Christopher, but I mean, I, I was wondering if there was something a bit deeper beneath the surface about that. But I find it fascinating, going back to the paint and premiere, that they only had the costumes for Pinafore. It was so improvised that um, the, the pirates put hankies on their heads. Yeah, I mean, the, the legal situation was that yeah. you had to establish... To is, there was no international copyright convention, so you had to establish cop copyright by doing... by being responsible for the original performance. Hence, yeah. they did it in New York and in the UK. So however crummy it was, it merely established the yes. copyright. Yes. Do, do we know where Gilbert got... Um, I mean, he clearly gets some of the story from a work he's already worked on, Frederick's story, but where does the rest of his story come from? Do we know? That's a very interesting question, isn't it? I mean, it just seems like, as with so many of their pieces, pure invention, um, taking ingredients and providing a, a very fluent story. We were talking about the way the story, the topsy-turvy story, is set up so very quickly. I mean, I even wonder, because people have raised it, though I'm not sure that this is true, that the very sixth word that's sung, sherry, I mean, is it a joke that the pirates drink sherry? I mean, Falstaff drank sack. Um, <laughs> no, I think, no, I, is it just I've read in several places yeah. that it's a joke that they drank sherry in the right. picture, but that's I disagree. Point. I disagree with that. It is sack. It's, I, I'm sure, you know, I can remember in the 1970s, not very far from here, in Houston, mm. a shop that sold loose, rough sherry. Right. And you took yeah. a bottle down, you took a receptacle down there and you, you bought it loose, and it right. was rough. Yeah. It was like rough cider that you get in the West mm. Country. Yeah. So I don't have any, a, a, any illusions. I don't think it's a joke about um, them no. drinking a soppy drink. Uh, it's... I rough thought it was worth sack. bringing up because so many people yeah. mentioned no, it. No, no, it's rough sack. And, but but uh, it, it's interesting that it's not rum, isn't it, in a way, because it locates yeah, our pirates yeah. in yeah. the Mediterranean, yeah. if you want to be grand about it. There you go. <laughs> but the point is, anyway, that in that chorus already you're getting the idea that Frederick is going to leave his indentures. So the plot is even set up in the opening chorus. Yeah. Um, and then immediately Ruth tells us the backstory. I mean, I was thinking that it's kind of the reverse of HMS Pinafore, where the story of the mixed up orphans is told by uh, Little Buttercup. But at the end, um, this is at the beginning. And that again points up that Pinafore takes an awful long time to get its story going, in a way. Um, and the other thing about this fast-moving plot, which fascinates me, is that um, the Act One finale is not maybe dramatically terribly eventful. Um, it revolves around uh, Major General Stanley telling them that he's an orphan, and we've had the idea of them all being orphans, and that people that they fight tell them they're orphans and they let them off. So that's already set up. So 
in a way that the actual denouement, well, not the denouement, but the, 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 the main turning point of the action, which would normally be in an Act One finale and certainly is in Mikado and other later Gilbert and Sullivan operas, is the idea of Frederick being a leap year baby and the idea that he's not out of his indentures. But this is where the music, I think, comes in because you do get that astonishing moment where the pirate king says, you know, what is life without a little bit of poetry in it? Stop. And then they all come out with this a cappella chorus, um, hail poetry. And what really struck me, in fact, it was beautifully done the other night, and, and what had struck me a couple of weeks before seeing Sasha Reagan's all-male Pirates of Penzance, which although they are boys singing the... Major General Stanley's daughters in falsetto. The chorus is fantastic, and it gave us goosebumps. And I thought, yes, it's uh, the Wach auf chorus from the Meistersinger. Um, you know, when the chorus in the third act turn and hail Hans Sachs, and putting them side by side, it became very obvious. And again, I disagree with um, certain comments I've read that, that this is standard Victorian choral music. And certainly, the way it's placed there is such a thrilling moment, isn't it? And it kind of gives that finale a, a shape. That gives me a, a wonderful cue to. Welcome our second guest, and we're going to hear a little bit of the music. Um, we've got with us now the baritone Adrian Powter, who is covering the role of the Major General in this production, and Chris Hopkins, a member of the music staff here, adding his actual... Can I just say, Chris Hopkins um, has played a major role in the production because he's been our rehearsal uh, pianist, repetiteur, and so I, I think it's not enough to say that he's just a member of the music staff. He has been a major player in our rehearsals. And you more need to know that. Shall we welcome Adrian? And Adrian, why don't you tell us what you're going to sing for us? I am the very model of a modern major general. <laughs> Very model of a modern major general. I'm information, vegetable, animal, and mineral. I know the kings of England, and I quote the fights historical from Marathon to Waterloo in order categorical. I'm very well acquainted too with matters mathematical. I understand equations both the simple and quadratical. About binomial theorem, I am teeming with a lot of news, with many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse. I'm very good at integral and differential calculus. I know the scientific names of beings and immaculus. In short, it matters vegetable, animal, and mineral. I am the very model of a modern major general. I know a mythic history, King Arthur's and Sacanadox. I answer hard across six, I have a pretty taste for paradox. I quote in elegiacs all the crimes of Helicabalus. In conics, I can flow peculiarities parabolous. I can tell undoubted Raphael's and Gerard thousands of I know the croaking chorus from the fronts of Aristophanes. Then I can have a fugue of which I've heard the music's dinner for. And whistle all the airs from that infernal nonsense pinafore. Then I could write a washing bill in Babylonic uniform and tell you every detail of Caractacus's uniform. In short, it matches vegetable, animal, and mineral. I am the very model of a modern major general. In fact, when I know what is meant by Mamelon and Ravelin, when I can tell at sight a mouse a rifle from a javelin, when such affairs are sorties and surprises I'm more wary at, 
And when I know precisely what is meant by commissariat, when I have learned what progress has been made in modern gunnery, when I know more of tactics than a novice in a nunnery, in short, when I was smattering of elemental strategy, you'll say a better major general has never strategy. For my military knowledge, though I'm plucky and adventurous, has only been brought down to the beginning of the century. But still, in matters vegetable, animal, and mineral, I am the very model of a modern major general. Thank you both very much. Um, Chris, as, as Mike has explained, you've been working on this production from the very beginning. Um, was it a work that you knew well before you began work on this production? Uh, no, not at all. Um, and I wasn't somebody that grew up in it either, so I didn't really have that, uh, that reference to school years um, that you do. Although, I have to say, when I got looking through the score, there was a lot of familiar music there that sort of somehow seeps into your consciousness even though you haven't necessarily seen the show. Um, and I, I worked on Mikado a couple of years ago, so I was sort of uh, familiar with the style, um, but it was nice actually for it to be a real discovery from, you know, a, a fresh discovery rather than uh, sort of something on a preconception. Actually, most of the people that we worked yeah. with um, haven't worked on no, it that's before. Right. Yeah. Uh, so we did have fun, didn't yeah. we? It's a real was, was that a choice, Mike, that you should work with, with a team who no, hadn't been cast no, the piece? No, no, I mean, obviously, when we kept, before we cast, I said, well, of course, we can't have anybody that's done it before. Well, that, you know, we do have people that's okay. done it before, I won't say who. But, mm. you know, they were very good and it didn't make any difference, you know. So, no, I mean, but as it so happens, most people hadn't done it before. So, that, so it really becomes, for you, for example, a voyage of discovery all yes. the way through. Yeah, and a fantastic one. Yeah. What what have what enthusiasm have you developed? What have you learnt about uh, Sullivan's gifts as a composer in working on this? Gosh, let's start. Um, it's uh, it's the concise um, sort of beauty of simplicity that that I think is really striking um, for me. It's, there's nothing superfluous in the music, um, but yet everything is very strongly characterised without being. Um, without being over the top, in a sense. Um, is, there's there's subtleties good, to it. it? At um, having two tunes going at once and yeah. each other. I mean, he, he clearly was... Uh, it, 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 composition came easily to him, I think, as it did with... Um, too easily, as some people have said? Well, people say that about Britain, but I don't think that's, you know... That I think is, anybody that yeah. says that about any artist is... It's a crazy thing to say. And David alerts uh, to the fact that you can possibly hear a quotation from Meistersinger. Uh, there are other quotations... A style, rather. Yeah, a style, a style. yeah. There are other styles <coughs> that are played with here, aren't People there? get very over the top about uh, him being influenced by other people to the extent where you sort of overanalyze every phrase is coming from this opera or this you know, Maya beer. Or, uh, and there are, there are things which, which are distinctly quotes, if you like. Um, Mabel sings a little cadenza. Well, this is from Traviata. And this is Mabel. Um, 
with a cheeky extra note. You know, there, there's uh, there's some similarity between the music for Mabel and uh, Violetta, and I mean, there's elements of Schubert, maybe French, yeah, also. You know, he was uh, one of the most important conductors. He conducted. Uh, widely, and he, he had a huge repertoire, um, and there's no doubt that all those influences are there, but you know, listen to Sullivan, it's, there's no doubt it's Sullivan you're listening exactly. to. Exactly, yeah. that's what I think, that, that he, he may be, I don't know whether the spoof is the right word, but he may be taking certain styles, particularly Verdi and Trovatore at times as well, in the more yeah. melodramatic moments, but he makes them totally his own, it's rather like when I was seeing um, the uh, spoof of all the shows that are on in London, the name escapes me for a moment. You have to be, the performers and the music have to be as good as the things they're spoofing. And I actually think that a lot of Sullivan's music is better than some of the models he's ripping off. You know, I, I really do think you have to take Sullivan entirely seriously yeah. as an opera composer yeah. of the 19th century in his own right. The fact that he wrote comic operas uh, no more deva devalues it no more than Mozart or, or, or Rossini or anybody else that wrote comic operas. And like them, he finds, particularly Mozart and Cousy, he finds depth at the right point. Like Absolutely. the duet for Frederick and Mabel mm -hmm. is exquisitely beautiful and, you know, it's very, very moving. In Iolanthe, the scene with the Lord Chancellor in Iolanthe, people say, but I couldn't believe that I was actually in tears at that point. This is a, a, a GNS comedy, but, but he does it. He knows there, when to there, do it. There is, a, at the root of it all, a, a sense of, always a sense of the character in the music, which is, it is not in your face. It's something simple like the pirates singing in 6-8 and there's that sort of swashbuckling against the policemen who are very rigid and Mabel who sings Mabel and Frederick who both sing beautiful bel canto lines almost you know which is exactly what you would expect of a good serious composer exactly, that yeah. the music is revealing things yes, that we wouldn't exactly. expect otherwise yeah. i mean i having never directed an opera before what i found interesting uh, and uh, very stimulating indeed from creatively working on it is uh, suddenly realizing you know that that we weren't uh, th there were phrases here and phrases there, you know, where I mm. would leap in and say, look, actually, let's, let's motivate what happens there, however subtly. Yeah. Um, let's just have a little movement or a little something, which, which in other words, I, I learnt the skill, I suppose, in the last few weeks mm. of, um, of, not, uh, 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 of starting to take notice yeah. of what the music was doing and what the music was inviting us to do mm. without it being in any way illustrational or literal. That's yeah. right, isn't That's it? That's right, yeah. How do you prepare the singers for Gilbert and Sullivan? Does it require something slightly different than would be the case with another composer? Mm, I don't think it should. I don't think you should take any different approach to how you prepare any other opera, really. Um, There's a uh, book called How to Sing Both Gilbert and Sullivan. <laughs> <laughs> by a man called William Cox Ife, who was the chorus master of the old Doily Cart Company. And I think if you analyse that, what you come down to is a very rigid set of rules which m would, would, I suspect, mostly make the singers sound like they were in the old Doily Cart Company, which is not a bonus, really. <laughs> <laughs> see, I, think, I think also the, the idea of speech melody. I mean, why, if you were brought up with it as a child, did you take it all on board and know it all off by heart at an early age. Only a composer who reflects the 
patterns of melody in human speech, like Sullivan does, and, and Gilbert knowing how to make it work. Only that supreme fusion could do it. I mean, and, and you get it perhaps with Cole Porter, um, and then of course you get it in, in serious opera. But the way that the words fit, it seems to me so. Does that, do you find that? Uh, yeah, and yeah. I think I, I think um, exactly following on from that, you know, we've been talking about it very properly in the context of opera, but we know that all the great uh, American composers of uh, and librettists, uh, lyricists and composers of the uh, great musicals of the 20th century all um, acknowledge Gilbert and Sullivan as their teachers, their daddies, their grandmasters. Uh, and you can see it all the way down the line. Even um, Stephen Sondheim, although sometimes he denies it, um, it's definitely there. <laughs> Stephen Sondheim says he thinks Gilbert is probably the most important librettist um, who's worked in musical theatre. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The thing that comes through for me from this production, but, but very forcefully, is just how extraordinary Gilbert is, actually. I mean, you allow us to hear Gilbert, it seems to me, in a way that we don't always listen to him, partly because we're familiar with so much of this music. I mean, have you grown in admiration for what Gilbert does? <laughs> I mean, I I do have complete admiration for what he does. I mean, you know, like all artists, with all art, there's a sort of um, there's a margin of stuff that you can do without. I've uh, uh, we've done this production. I don't want to say too much about it. You may be about to see it, um, but but the most important thing is that we've. I wanted to have a camp-free production. I wanted to make a production that went back to the actual piece itself and allows it to speak for itself, although we've done things with the staging and the, the um, uh, uh, staging of the various scenes and episodes, which breaks them down in a subtle way, I hope. But at the same time, although I've, the production is based on complete respect for Gilbert, I have edited the script, uh, the libretto, uh, uh, the dialogue particularly. I mean, we've taken out some of the clunkiest gags um, and indeed someone, some rather obscure references that nobody would possibly understand. Uh, we've also, I've also taken the liberty um, since I'm something of a, I have some pretensions of being a dramatist myself and I'm used to, <laughs> used to constructing the dialogue and writing it. Um, we have actually, there are places where we've reorganised the things that people say slightly and slightly modified the language, the actual uh, syntax. Uh, and I've also done that thing, which I learned as a skill when I was the assistant director at the Royal Shakespeare Theatre in the 1960s, uh, particularly from John Barton, who was a great um, academic and director, of saying, you know, you get um, a speech from somebody, and you chop it in half and you give half of it to one character and to the other, and it, it, it moves it on. There's a bit of that going on here and there. Um, but all of that is uh, out of respect and appreciation and delight in what Gilbert is giving us. And, you know, uh, we haven't had to monkey around with the music much, although there is, those of you that are experts will spot there is one written extended piece of music within it um, but I won't say what that is because I don't feel like it a <laughs> <laughs> very simple you must have had after the wonderful topsy-turvy you must have had lots of opportunities to come and direct 
one of these Gilbert Sullivan on the stage. You obviously resisted them until this moment. Well, I had no... I mean, I, as, I, <laughs> as I put in my biography in the programme notes, the last time I directed a piece of work that wasn't my own was a disastrous production of Brecht's Life of Galileo for the Bermuda Arts Festival of 1970. <laughs> so I have devoted the entire time, apart from a short film I once directed that Jim Broadbent wrote, I have actually spent the entire time making it up. So I had no real, you know, but um, the management here were very nice and they said, come and do this. And I thought, well, I might learn something and it might be fun and I have and it was Did you get to choose which uh, opera? We went through a lot of discussion starting with Iolanthe um, which I'm much as I like the music and some of the bits there are some aspects of it that I'm uncomfortable with um, I, we talked about Princess Ida we talked about Patience and then all of a sudden during the course of these uh, machinations Somebody put on, a guy called Martin Mills, put on uh, a fringe production at the Finborough Theatre uh, in West London of The Grand Duke, which was Gilbert and Sullivan's last opera. And a very low-budget production. I went to see it. It was hilarious. And you know, David Parry, the conductor of this production, and a great conductor and a great um, uh, 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 Compose a, a great conductor of this kind of music. Wonderful job. I mean, uh, really, I he's have, great. He's in the, inside the score that I've never heard. No, I in think that's right. Things, yeah. But he, like, he uh, liked the score, and Alison Chitty, who I've um, uh, collaborated with a lot, the designer, uh, she liked it too. So we came to Eno you know, and we said, let's do the Grand Duke. Because right. it would be really original and yeah. nobody's seen it and we can have fun with it and so on. And they were very enthusiastic at first, till they listened to it. And then they said they didn't think it was a good idea. <laughs> but they, so, hadn't, they hadn't seen that production, so you knew so, how it could work. Well, I, I, I knew how I could make it work. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah, the more exactly. important thing. You know, yeah, it would be very yeah, funny. Yeah. But we then all said, OK, well, why don't we do the Pirates of Penzance? And that is all there is to tell you. <laughs> but in a way, walking home, I just thought if, if I had to choose one Gilbert and Sullivan, it would have been Pirates. If only because of the contrast between Pirates and Policemen. There's something Mike Lee about that contrast. Did you not feel I just uh, thought to feel the... the I, no, I, now that you've said it, I absolutely think that myself. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Please come but again. Because it hadn't occurred to me previously. <laughs> Say um, a little bit about Alison Chitty and, and, and the design for the piece, which we've been looking at on the screen here. I... Um, we've worked together a lot. I mean, everything I've done in the theatre for a very long time. And she also designed Naked, uh, Life is Sweet, The Secrets and Lies. Um, I, I said to her that... Um, somehow we want I talked about the getting to the essence of the thing and just giving it a clear pure um, canvas but I also at the, our initial discussions I said you know I, somehow it has to have a fluidity and we need to be able to go from scene to scene and sh shift location in a cinematic way without actually literally having old fashioned series of sets with ground rows and perspectives and things. Um, but it, and we also need, I said to her, we need to be able to, in a sense, um, move into a move into close up on some some scenes and open out into a long shot. Talking of film language, really, and the scheme she came up with, which you will see, um, which is very at the, one of the same time, both very 
simple, but also very sophisticated, um, allows us to do exactly that. Um, and although you actually see a ship uh, for the pirates at the beginning, um, uh, you know, there are, it's just a shift, and it's the, it gives it a free fluidity, uh, and it's not a literal kind of set. Um, so in a way, it's kind of... Bauhaus meets Gilbert and Sullivan. It's kind of abstracted. But, the, the, but then we said the important thing is the characters. And so the costumes are absolutely 1880 or Victoria melodrama, and they're very precise. But at, at the same time, they're obviously um, in harmony with the, with, with, with the set. And the, and the, I mean, we're also working with Paul Pyant, who, again, we've worked with as a team lots. I mean, the last... Two plays we did at the National Theatre, he did. Uh, he's lit other stuff of mine, <coughs> of ours. And so uh, the shift of colour and light uh, is very, very important. Uh, it, uh, and I feel that apart from whatever we've done with the characterisation and the storytelling and the bringing, the dealing with and serving Gilbert and Sullivan, uh, I, I'm very pleased with the. Uh, the mise-en-scene as well. Because I think it, can I just ask, I, th I think it, it, it does what it has to do in, the, in, you admitted yourself in the note, I think, but it's a very big space, the Colosseum, and Gilbert and Sullivan ideally is Savoy Theatre size, so you have to make it work. Yeah, in a, in a big space. there are no two ways about it. This theatre, which was designed for, by Frank Matcham, the great theatre architect, it was designed uh, originally for shows with horses and elephants and cascades of water. Coliseum, and, you know, yes, yes. Uh, and it had, until not so long ago, the biggest revolve in Europe or something. Uh, it's the biggest auditorium in London. It's bigger than the uh, Theatre Royal Drury Lane or the, uh, and certainly the Royal Opera House. It is too big for this kind of work. It just is. Um, and so apart from uh, all the aesthetic and dramatic and theatrical choices that have gone into the design, um, it, is, it serves as a baffle. The action is forward and the sound is pushed forward mm. and uh, again we've staged it in a way that pushes the sound forward because you know they're up against it these guys uh, but, uh, um, it's a bloody big place you know I mean, we, we yeah. think about we think about Gilbert uh, and we think about him as a quite revolutionary as a director he's determined to create a kind of style of naturalism he insists that his performance should stay within character I mean I wonder whether that became the kind of cue for you in in, in working with the singers actors. well I don't know about staying in character and all of that I, I, that's a little bit debatable um, uh, uh, directing uh, uh, as a as a skill um, uh, as a discipline didn't really exist until um, one or two others, and certainly he came along. Um, uh, you know, it, it was a free-for-all. And the only kind of real uh, directing, i.e. bossing people around and telling them w w w what to do, how to do it, or where to stand, were from those... Um, actor managers who, uh, who, who, all of whose productions were um, arranged around their own egocentric performances of Lear or Macbeth or Hamlet or whoever it was. Um, Gilbert was one of the first um, really disciplined, actual practices of, practices of a mise-en-scene. I mean, he worked, he, he worked on the design, he really designed them himself. He worked out, I mean, he did things that, for modern practitioners 
such as myself uh, would be uh, anathema. He worked out every move uh, with a model stage before he set foot in the rehearsals. Now, I mean, that is absolutely sacrilege as far as I'm concerned. But he was a disciplinarian. And, of course, what he was doing very properly was um, serving what his work needed, which was a precise, distilled discipline mm. to get it out there. It was very formal, very symmetrical, uh, and all of those things. Um, I'm perhaps more bemused than amused by some critics of this production in the last few days who have kind of accused it of being totally unadventurous and no more than a rehashing of an old style of performance. It's nonsense, of course. Um, but I think what... The, of course, like most critics, they can't see the wood for the trees and they don't know anything about the medium they're reviewing. Um, <laughs> um, and, of course... The, the, old, the old parallel with the eunuch occurs to me yeah, at this there point. You go, absolutely. You. Um, the, uh, uh, and, of course, what we've done in this production is serve what Gilbert wants, and indeed Sullivan, is to get to the clarity and simplicity of the thing. And if I could just say, I, I mean, one of the real innovations, I think, of Gilbert and Sullivan is that the chorus are such groups of individuals and he sets them against each other. I mean, I loved it that you've only got, what is it, 13 daughters yeah. rather than overwhelming the stage with lots and lots of daughters, well, which is a joke. Uh, sorry, that's only because there are only 13 in the... There are only 13. There you are could have had a bigger th chorus, Well, we you? could have had, but yeah. some of them would have been old enough to be their, gr <laughs> old enough to be their grandma. So well, that's yeah. also a, a certain <laughs> charm about some productions. Yeah. Um, we have a little time left, so I think we should ask if the audience would like to ask uh, any of our guest questions. We've got the traditional roving microphone. If you like to put your hand up, catch my eye, then I will direct the microphone for you. Who would like to ask a question? We've got a question in the second row. I was very interested because I know your films, and uh, so it, it must be a great... Ch How long did it take you to, from the planning of this? It must have taken two, three years, or how long did it take for you to... Because it's such a different... It's just a, a different genre for, for you, and have you got any more idea for doing something else? Well, I mean, the truth of it is that I've directed a huge number of plays in the theatre, so the actual business of doing a thing on the stage is not news. The news is just the operatic aspect. I mean, actually, we had to set about casting it quite a long time ago, but that's because that's what you, you do in opera, because opera singers are busy way ahead in a way that actors aren't, so I'm certainly not used to that, mostly. Um, I mean, most projects in the theatre or in the cinema don't get greenlit to the last minute. Um, uh, so we've been talking about it for, for indeed, two or three years, um, but that's because of that's how it is in opera. Um, as to the, the last part of your question, uh, as to doing another opera, the jury is out. But as I've got quite a lot of other ideas when I, mean, when I return to my day job, um, it's probable that I might be have to direct my next opera from beyond the grave. <laughs> Do we have another question? There's another hand. Yes. Um, hello. You'd made a quick reference to... Um, uh, Mozart and Rossini. Um, if we added 
Donizetti to the uh, those of two. Course, yeah. And if we could wave a magic wand in terms of your schedule, is there any particular opera that you might go for? Uh, sorry, I can't answer that question because it's covered by my um, the foreboding in my last um, answer. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have another question that might bring us another question? Yes. Um, was there any particular singer that you absolutely had to have for this production, <laughs> besides all of them? <laughs> no, well, no, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I approach this in the spirit of how this very healthy organization operates. You know, I don't know opera singers, and I, in any useful way, I mean, obviously I'd go and see opera, but um, no, I mean, a, a very good casting, a very good casting department, and David Parry, the conductor, um, made very good suggestions, and we auditioned a lot of people, and we chose the people that wanted to do it and seemed the best. Um, and we are blessed with some very, very uh, special and talented people. But I didn't arrive with um, uh, uh, such notions because uh, um, it would have been arrogant to do so. Ladies and gentlemen, I think we've reached the end of our allotted time. Um, can a couple of house notices, if you would like a drink before this evening's performance, I think the bar down in the... The dress circle is open. Um, underneath many of your bottoms, you will find a sheet of paper which will tell you about the next set of pre-performance talks. We hope we'll welcome you then. But much more importantly, we should thank our four guests for being here. So thank you, Mike D, David Neese, Adrian Patter, and Chris Hopkins. Thank you very much. <laughs>